Hello and welcome to History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel and thanks for joining us. On this episode, Bruce Weindrick and I are going to talk about how companies throughout history have pivoted and adapted to meet the needs of a crisis. Whether it be a health pandemic, a war, or a natural disaster, there's a long history of how businesses have responded, both for humanitarian and commercial reasons, just as companies today are stepping up to fight COVID-19. But first, I'm going to talk with our friend Jeff Thatcher, the author of the new book, The CEO's Time Machine. Jeff and I were on a virtual event a couple of weeks ago called Life During Lockdown that focused on how people and organizations have been making the best of their time and applying their creativity and talents over the last few months. And for Jeff and his daughter Zoe, that meant publishing a book that had long been sitting on the proverbial shelf. Jeff is the founder and CEO of the agency Creative Principles, and he's collaborated with History Factory over the years on many projects for our clients. He and his firm's specialties include brand experiences, museums, and theme parks, which you're going to hear a little bit more about. And his book, The CEO's Time Machine, is a really fun little read that Jeff and I are going to talk more about right now. Hey, Jeff, how are you? Welcome to the podcast, buddy. Thanks. So good to be here. Yeah, man. Well, first, congratulations on uh, the book, uh, The CEO Time Machine. Uh, I uh, actually read read the entire thing. So uh, kudos on uh, producing a book that is um, highly uh, readable uh, and ingestible. Uh, it's, a really, it's, a, it's a really unique format. Um, I got one, one question for you. How much did you, uh, how much did you pay your illustrator? Well, as you know, that's a funny question. The illustrator is my daughter, Zoe, but she does work for me. So uh, I did pay her salary uh, through the uh, pandemic uh, while uh, she illustrated 43 renderings or 43 illustrations for the book. And she did that in three weeks, which was absolutely amazing. amazing. And I, you know, what I love about working with young people, whether it's my daughter or somebody else, is young people sometimes don't know what's impossible. And if I would have gone to any experienced illustrator in the industry and said, hey, I need 43 illustrations in three weeks, uh, they would have said no. They would or have just charged that. you $500,000. <laughs> they would have charged <laughs> me a lot of money. So, so it, was, yes. it was so much fun working with her on it because, you know, uh, I mean, I think it's a great story. But yeah. I hope you agree. It's the illustrations that really bring it to life. Yeah. And well, without it's, it's those cool... illustrations, it's just it's it's not as good at all. Yeah. Well, it's a cool format, and I don't. What's is it like? What is it like? Ten to fifteen thousand words, maybe something like that. Yeah. It's not. I mean, it takes about thirty-five minutes to read the book. So it's not. Yeah. It, it is. It is a short story. It is a business parable. It's a fable yeah. of sorts, and uh, you know. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great it's a it's a great pickup uh, to to all of our listeners. It's a great pickup for uh, for you know the 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 flight from you know DC to New York. Really, it's uh, it's it's that kind of a thing. Absolutely, uh, and you know we but, haven't even talked about what the name of the book is. I don't think we just yeah, talked so about this the, mysterious well, I'll, book. I'll, yeah, it's uh, well, I, I'll, I'll I set that up in the intro before you were on, but yeah, it's the CEO's time machine, and so. So yeah, so why don't why don't you give our, our listeners Jeff the uh, the voiceover on the movie trailer? 
<laughs> the voiceover on the movie trail. That's so. Do I have to do it in the voiceover voice, or can I do it in my voice? In a world. In a world. So rather than give you the voiceover, because I'm a writer, I'm going to set it up. You know what I mean? I'm going okay. to write it like I'm going to give it to you as if I was script writing it, right? You know. Right. And it's it's you know we open you know we open with a garage slowly lifting up with fog rolling out, you know, and a light flashing as the garage opens up, you know, you see a guy that looks like Brad Pitt, you know, standing there with gray hair, you know, grizzled face a little bit. And next to him, a, uh, you know, more like a, um, uh, trying to think here, like Gwyneth Paltrow. How about that? I mean, Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow, they were together once. And I think, I think Gwyneth Paltrow, I still see her as young, right? Okay. Maybe it shouldn't be sure. Brad Pitt. Maybe it should be somebody older. I don't know. But you see this young protege. Sam Elliott is a CEO. Sam <laughs> Elliott's the CEO. There you go. Gwyneth Paltrow is the protege. You know what's funny? I'm sorry, I totally digress. Is I think Gwyneth Paltrow is still young and she's my age, but I still see her as young. <laughs> so maybe that's yeah. a good thing. Yeah. Uh, sorry, back to the trailer. Back to the trailer. You know, you see nervousness on this protege's face as this garage goes up, she knows that the secret to the CEO's success, the secret to this CEO who has invented new markets, changed the world, is inside this garage because no one in her company, you know, like Tony Stark with uh, Stark Industries, nobody gets to go in this garage except for the CEO. She is the first employee of the company to step inside. And all she's thinking about are, is whether the rumors are true. Is there actually a time machine inside the CEO's garage? Awesome. So we leave, we'll leave it there? We'll leave it there. Sounds good. We could, we could, we could go more, but that's, that's certainly the opening scene of the trailer. And as, as, as I know, you, uh, amusement parks have been a big influence on your life and your career. Um, you kind of grew up, grew up in a, in, in one as a teenager. So what, what, what's kind of the, what, what was the influence of maybe that experience and what were some of the other kind of drivers uh, for you creating this story? Yeah. I mean, I got my, start in this industry as a 14-year-old cleanup boy. And that was actually the title of the job was cleanup boy. Uh, that was my job title uh, at an amusement park. And I worked there for 10 years all the way through high school and college. That had a brief flirtation with journalism. And then really, I've been working in experience design ever since at, at, at firms, including my own now, where we do everything from brand experience centers to theme parks to museums. And this book is written like a theme park attraction. You know, it opens with an iconic element that you step through, like any great ride. You know, it's the garage, you know, the opening up. And then you step inside a queue. And what we have to remember, though, is that the best attractions, that queue is about building trust. And so what happens in the CEO time machine, the book, is the CEO takes her into this, you know, crowded hallway that winds through all of the historical artifacts he's collected over the years that help to inform his decisions today. You know, there's a reason why he keeps a spark, a Delco spark plug. There's a reason why he has an NCR, you know, National Cash Register on display. There's a reason why he has an eight-track tape player. Uh, there's a reason why he has, you know, a book uh, by David McCollum on the Wright Brothers. These things help to inform his decisions today. He wants to 
in essence, travel to the past and learn from those things. And then after that cue where that trust is built, you step into a rotunda. And I don't want to give too much away in the book, but he steps into a rotunda that represents the present. But this is where the CEO gives that his protege the, the information she needs to move forward in the journey. It is literally like a pre-show in a theme park attraction. So again, you have that icon that draws you in. You have that cue that builds trust. Then you have the pre-show. And then, of course, after the pre-show, they ride an elevator down into the main attraction, which is, of course, I mean, the book's called The CEO's Time Machine, which is the time machine itself. And that's where, really, in any great attraction, the story is internalized. The message is internalized. And then finally, you know, all great theme parks, they exit through retail. And while technically our CEO and his protege don't exit through retail, I'd like you to buy the book. So you can go to www.ceotimemachine.com and buy the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all other retailers. Yeah, so I'm I'm glad you mentioned that, Jeff, because that was going to be my question was, you know, where's the gift shop at the end of the ride? Well, the cynic would say that the only reason the best theme park attractions exit through retail is so you buy something. And while that there is some truth to that, what you really want to have happen is you want to become part of the story. When I and our family, when our family went to the Harry Potter attraction at Universal Studios for the first time, and we stood in the retail store at the exit of the castle. Sure, we were looking to buy something. That is true. And Universal Studios certainly wanted us to buy something. But the conversation we had wasn't about dollars and cents. The conversation we had was which one of us is going to be in Hufflepuff and buy a Hufflepuff jersey. That would be Zoe, the illustrator of this book. Which one of us is going to be in Ravenclaw? That would be my son, Joel. Which one of us belongs in Gryffindor? Uh, That would be my wife, Tanya and my youngest daughter, Mia. And then unfortunately, which one of us would be decked out in green as Slytherin? And unfortunately, that would be me. So uh, it is what it is. But it's what you want people to do at the end of any great attraction is to become part of the story. You want them to act and to do something. And certainly, my ultimate objective is not for someone to buy the book. What I want more than anything else is I want somebody to care about the past, to care about the future, to care about connecting the past and the future and then coming to the present and making a decision and being decisive here in the present. That's what I want people to care about. Yeah. And would, and that's, would you say, Jeff, that that's really kind of the core takeaway? I mean, if you were to boil it down to, you know, what's the moral of the parable? Um, what is it? Is it that? You know, it's been very interesting because the feedback we've been getting, it's been out for just over a month now. And the feedback we've been getting is that depending on your perspective, you take something completely different away from the book. So for example, I had uh, someone read it who reached out to me and they said, oh my gosh, I had this job for 25 years and I always felt like nobody was listening to my ideas. And I felt like my ideas were the future and nobody was ever listening to my ideas. I had somebody else email me and say they were deeply disturbed about the ethical quandary at the end of the book about whether to engage the time machine or not. And we don't want to get into the details, but there are some ethics involved of whether you should time travel. And, And then I've had other people that simply said, you know what, this really is amazing because it reminds me that our future is informed by our past. And so, you know, there's lots of different layers to it. But in the end, this is a time machine. So it is about connecting the past and the future to the present. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, 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 and you should know this. Uh, I know you know this. It is, was is, is Bruce Weindrick, the yeah. CEO of the History Factory, who really inspired me to write the book. Because, you know, when I wrote this story back in 2016, Bruce had just come out with Start With the Future and Work Back. And so yeah. I was thinking about time travel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you, you and I just uh, were on a, 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 an event last week uh, with Bruce and, uh, and with, some, with some other, uh, other CEOs um, uh, on this uh, event that was uh, kind of life during lockdown in which we talked about, you know, how different companies are having to pivot and reinvent themselves or um, adapt significantly uh, to, to be able to continue operating in uh, quote unquote, the new normal. And, um, and, and as you shared, you started working on this book a few years ago. Um, but it was kind of the, the quarantine that, that served a little bit as the, uh, as the impetus to, to pull this book over the finish line. Was it not? Absolutely. I mean, I like to describe the pandemic as the best of times and the worst of times. I mean, Charles Dickens had it right without the pandemic, without the pause that we had in, in projects going on hold. Uh, Zoe and I would have never had the time to work on this book. I mean, I, you know, I wrote the wrote the story back in 2016, and then it just kind of sat there, and yeah. nothing happened to it. And then Zoe did a really cool illustration on her Instagram page in October, and I loved it. And I said, you know what? That's the exact style we need for that story I wrote on on mm. time travel. And then we didn't really do anything with it. And when the pandemic hit and the lockdown shelter in place orders came, I turned to Zoe and I said, let's do the book. I said, we've got to do something. Uh, we can't just sit here. We can't just, you know, I don't know how to make masks. Let's, let's, you know, let's, let's do something. And so Zoe in three weeks did 43 illustrations. Uh, we turned to a you know, longtime graphic design uh, collaborator of ours and she helped us with the layout and the cover, uh, went to a, a copy editor uh, that we've worked with on another book project and she put us to the front of the queue and then we called a publisher uh, and, and the publisher uh, fortunately was totally on board it was totally excited about it and so you know it was about four and a half weeks later we had the book up on Amazon yeah that's awesome and that wouldn't have happened without the pandemic yeah no absolutely as you said the worst of times and the best of times so Cool. Well, Jeff, congratulations on the book, man. And uh, always good to talk to you. And, I do have uh, one question for you, though. Yeah, sure. So you're one of the few uh, podcasters that I've talked to that actually read the book. So thank you for that. And so my oh. question is, would without giving too much away, I don't want you to you know, ruin, the, the, ruin the ending, but I want to know whether you would have pushed the button at the end and engaged the time machine. Yeah, I would have, although it you is thought about it, though. <laughs> I did think about it for the same reason as you noted one of your um, one of your readers responded around the ethical consideration. And yeah, I don't want to give away you know what the time machine is, but um, that would be the uh, that would be the, the one quandary for me was um, was some of those ethical considerations. But you would push it. You would but hop would into the time machine and engage. I would push it, but I think I would, I, I'm going to have my cake and eat it too. I would push it, but I would moving forward as the new CEO, try to put some new policies in place on how the time machine operates in that environment. Ah, interesting. How's you, that? Sound, you, you sound like Batman in the dark night. You, know? <laughs> you would get, you would get Morgan Freeman to be in charge of the time machine, right? 
<laughs> That's what so, you yeah. would do. <laughs> my answer is my answer is yes and. Yes, I'm definitely going to keep the time machine. I'm definitely going to use it, but I'm going to put Morgan Freeman in charge of ethics. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. All yeah. right. Good. Yeah. Yes, and. So, all right, buddy. Great, great to talk to you, Jeff. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Jason. Thanks to Jeff. And if you're interested in buying a copy of the CEO's Time Machine, you can find it on a little website called Amazon. So now in the spirit of the CEO's time machine, we're now going to take a ride through time with History Factory's own CEO and founder, our big chief, Bruce Weindrick. Bruce, how are you? Good, Jason, how are you? Doing good, doing good. Uh, getting through these uh, weird weird weather days here, but uh, you know, we're, we're here of course talking about how companies are, are pivoting and uh, wanted to talk to you a little bit about how there's a long history of organizations that have had to um, reinvent themselves in, in moments of crisis or, uh, or adapt uh, to fill a need in response to um, a crisis. And let's start with what are some of the earliest examples that you've seen of organizations making that kind of change? Yeah, let's, the earliest examples by their very nature wouldn't be readapting. They were adapting and inventing. Uh, but they were, needless to say, the same kind of reinvention. Uh, but they were doing it for the first time. And probably one of the most interesting ones that I saw that also had some real uh, echoes forward to what we're seeing today, 1721 the Boston smallpox epidemic. Now, we're talking uh, an English colony, a British colony at that point. Uh, James Franklin, the older brother of Benjamin Franklin, starts a newspaper, the first independent newspaper in America. And this, was, this is important because they're under the crown. To have an independent newspaper was very important, called the New England Current. And why did he start it? In the midst of the epidemic, this was the earliest days of the notion of an inocul inoculation. They would take a lesion from a person who had the smallpox and literally inject some of the pus into another person. It's not a vaccine, it's an inoculation. Mm. And there was, a, there was a huge debate, not unlike we have today with vaccines. He uses this first independent newspaper as an anti-inoculation uh, uh, platform, maybe a Fox News uh, of its time. but. What's really interesting about it is he quickly pivots because within months, he's already expanding out into what we know today as a kind of a media uh, property. He adds politics, he adds social uh, uh, issues, he adds humor. So to me, this pivot to this smallpox epidemic has a lot of, a lot of uh, kind of shadows, foreshadows of what we, we've seen today in the media, uh, in communications, in even the notion of a debate over, uh, you know, getting involved in the debate over uh, an epidemic. So there you go. That's, that's one of the earliest ones I could find in our country. I, I did not know that Ben Franklin's older brother was an anti-inoculator. There you go. Yes, he was. He was. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. So, so, so why do companies do this? Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing obviously, uh, in, in our, in the current, uh, <clears throat> crisis, we've seen organizations shift to manufacturing a lot of face masks, um, hand sanitizer, um, obviously some of the more robust, uh, companies with the engineering and operational competencies of a, of a GM, for instance, are, are helping with things like ventilators, um, but why do companies do this? Is it is it purely a, a form of survival, or is there an element of, of patriotism? What are the drivers? Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because the, the, the one I'm going to bring up is both survival and patriotism. Uh, so this would have been 1861, and I've always enjoyed this document. It's one of our client archives, Brooks Brothers. And there's this mm -hmm. handwritten order to Brooks Brothers from the quartermaster of the army, Chester Arthur, later. President Chester Arthur, who remained, by the way, a huge, you know, he was quite the uh, dapper uh, president. Uh, at one point, he was accused of spending $700 at Brooks Brothers, be about $15,000 in today's. But here he was, Quartermaster Army. He, he sends this order to Brooks Brothers, and he says, it's from 1861, mind you, on the, you know, the Civil War. And he says, take, please, I'd like to change our order for 300 gray overcoats for the New York Union Regiment, and please have them changed to blue. Now, this was kind of interesting because at that point, there, there, there had been no real need to have to have a defined color for your regiment, but certainly you would not want a Northern Regiment marching into battle in gray overcoats. And so Chester Arthur sends him a, a note saying, could you please adapt my, my order for 300 overcoats to gray? There was a case of politics, survival, and patriotism all wrapped into one. Um, as you move forward, Big change order, bit, yeah, huge, <laughs> change, a very important change order. If you're going to be wearing that jacket, that's for sure. Uh, you know, it's interesting though. Uh, you know, uh, so far I've talked about uh, you know, an epidemic, and I've talked about a, a, a war. Natural disasters are another one in which organizations respond, uh, usually because it's happening right where they're located. And uh, it's for their people, it's for themselves, it's for their companies, it's for the city. A, a great example, there was a thousand-year flood in 1937 on the Ohio and Mississippi. It was huge. And Louisville was, was, was submerged. And here's a case, and I've always found this really interesting. Um, our, our, uh, again, a, a former client, Brown Foreman, they, they were involved in an effort to take 50-gallon whiskey barrels and create a pontoon bridge that spanned Beargrass Creek, which was a way for people to get from downtown across to the highlands. It's said that 35,000 exiles a day were crossing this bridge. But here's another interesting use of this pontoon bridge. People were floating in the water, uh, you know, holding on to whatever they could, wreckage. People would line up on the bridge and snag people as they floated downriver during the flood. Jeez. So it served two purposes. It was a, a way and exit strategy, but it was also a safety net to, to snatch people out of the water. I find that to be an absolutely intriguing use of whiskey barrels uh, in, in those days, but they, they were practical. All right. Yeah. It's hard, it, it, but you know, it's hard to imagine as you move on to the second world war a little bit later, you know, you would have assumed that yes, profit might be of motivation. Not so much. Um, the First World War was so poorly, and there was so much adjudication afterwards. There was so much profiteering 
during World War One. that by the time World War II came along, uh, windfall profits, uh, you couldn't make, uh, you could make a profit, you, uh, but, you, but, but for war mobilization, it wasn't anything like the First World War. Really what happened is kind of interesting. There was a spirit that developed, and I've seen a lot of it in the, in the recent years. You mentioned the face masks. Um, you know, uh, I think a lot of organizations respond and make this pivot because they're competitive. They're competitive. They, 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 they want to do it better than their competitors. A good mm -hmm. example is during the Second World War, North Carolina and South Carolina had these large uh, uh, textile mills. The, the lingerie factories in North Carolina and South Carolina began making camouflage netting. Uh, and then I think turnaround is fair play. One of my favorites was there was a cosmetic company in England called Stratton who lost four of their five Birmingham, England factories to Liftwaffe bombing. Well, they were a cosmetics company. What did they do? They converted their lipstick cases into shell casings. So needless to say, they got back. To your question, though, about what also happens. Look, you've got a Kodak. Uh, during the Second World War, of course, they're going to be doing lenses, cameras, aerial reconnaissance photography. But here's something. They had a metal shop. And they were able to churn out 15,000 one-ton pontoons that were used when the assault craft would go onto the shore. They would use them for floating docks, bridges, barges. Amazing shift, change in what they were manufacturing uh, using a, a skill set that they didn't use for their business, but to adapt for the wartime. Um, mm. Whirlpool, very similar. You know, uh, they, they make uh, washing machines and dryers. Well, during the war, aircraft propeller, pitch controls, trailing edges, uh, the backside of a fighter wing, hydraulic steering mechanism for, for tanks, uh, carburetor pumps. Then some companies during the war pivot along the product line that they know our favorite and our, one of our favorite uh, clients, Wrigley, they dedicated their entire output of Wrigley Spearmint, Doublemint, and Juicy Fruit for the armed forces. Mind you, these create relationships, Hershey, very similar. These create relationships during wartime that are never forgotten. You know, there's the uh, commercial aviation in the, in the uh, post-war period. Uh, uh, Boeing took a, a, a strong lead in it because so many of these young 18, 19-year-old pilots flew Boeing equipment. And it used to be the line am among the commercial aviation pilots uh, after the Second World War, if it ain't Boeing, it ain't going. These guys got used to seeing that Boeing logo uh, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the steering wheel, and they wanted to fly Boeing aircraft. One of my favorite adaptive reuses was during the Korean War, uh, Blatch Brewing and Schlitz Brewing uh, sent 600,000 cans and bottles of beer to men fighting in Korea, primarily men in those days. The interesting side of it, when the, when the, when the Korean War winds down, they had to figure out a safe way to get 25,000 unused hand grenades back to the United States. Well, guess what? They fit perfectly in those empty beer cans. And <laughs> <saved it. laughs> so I'm just giving you an example of these kind of responses. But, you know, sometimes it really has to do with doing the right thing. And one of the most interesting pivots I ever ran across in, in our work, I was inspired by it. We had a company called Preferred Risks. They're now called Guide One out of Des Moines, Iowa. They're the total abstainers company. They underwrite uh, abstainers and also more importantly, churches. 
during the 1960s, uh, during the civil rights protests led by Martin Luther King, uh, people who were protesting couldn't get access to public transportation. So they would form these informal, uh, uh, self-given transportation systems in private cars. William Plymat, the founder of Preferred Risk, because he knew Martin Luther King through his church insurance, underwrote, insured those automobiles to allow them to serve as transportation uh, during uh, those early protests of the 1960s. That's done for the right reason. And that becomes, yeah. for that, com- that becomes for that company such an important part of their purpose that they did that. So these are examples, you know, there's interesting ones. I mean, NASA in 85 used telecommunications technology, satellite technology to help Mexico City uh, when they were devastated by an earthquake and there was no landlines. This was the first time that it had ever been used. Another first time was what they call the first space war, uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. You know, this was the time that, that for the first time the GPS had been used in actual combat. The irony was the Army didn't have enough equipment. And it's rumored, and it's, it's, it's pretty much well documented, that a number of uh, uh, units, as they were getting ready to, to head off uh, to the Persian Gulf, would stop by their local Sears store and buy <laughs> handheld GPSs as they went off uh, to the war. Those are some of the pivots and examples we've seen over the years. Yeah, and it's interesting um, that kind of spectrum of the companies that ostensibly were able to just redirect their resources to create the same product to basically fill the need, right? Like you know, like a like a Wrigley, um, uh, or even I guess you know some like a like a you know some of the, the car companies, and that helps create that brand affinity that you mentioned. Um, versus the companies that really stretch their capabilities to create something that's a completely different product, like a Whirlpool uh, that goes presumably from manufacturing appliances to essentially starting to manufacture hardware for a completely different purpose. Um, so that's kind of interesting, that, that dynamic of companies that basically just redirect what they're already doing versus companies that really stretch themselves to create, you know, something totally new. Yeah. And again, a lot of it, if you look at what were the factors that they were responding to, I mean, certainly Brown Foreman as a liquor company uh, was not a bridge builder and never thought of their barrels, but you know, it's a mother of invention, you know, you, 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 you had, you had to do it. So to, to your point, some of these companies like a Wrigley, uh, had a fairly narrow manufacturing bandwidth. Okay. So they did, they served how they could serve. All right. Yeah. They provide, they provided enjoyment and diversion to the troops. Okay. Um, where, where an insurance company like Bill Plymouth at uh, preferred risk now guide one, um, they just extended, uh, what they would normally do it in their channel churches and then extended it. And by the way, having serving churches pretty much already had a purpose-driven company and just pushed it one step further. So, uh, to, to support, to, to support a client. So yes, you're absolutely right. Some companies will push it well beyond the bounds. Uh, to be really honest, uh, there, there was a need for washers and dryers, uh, during during the Second World War, but people took 
and, and made the sacrifice to allow that, that assembly line to be reused for something else. And that's always an issue you'll see during a time, like oil companies, for example. Um, you know, you'll see these campaign posters, particularly during world wars, which is kind of like, you know, uh, save a life, uh, carpool with a friend. Uh, yeah. Those kinds of things, which, which to your point, is a reputational issue. Why you would still be doing something like, you know, driving your car when that ounce of gas could go into an airplane to to go fly a young man back from a bombing mission uh, in Europe. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it feels like World War II was a unique moment where there really was that sense of of shared sacrifice. Um, in a lot of conflicts since it doesn't feel like there's necessarily that same sort of sense of shared sacrifice that folks are feeling here versus, you know, those on the front lines. Um, and I, you know, there, obviously there's a lot of that kind of advertising from that era that would communicate, you know, why there might be a shortage of product because they're being used on the front lines or why you should be saving natural resources, et cetera, and so forth. Um, and what about the what about the notion of how companies have been sort of permanently altered um, versus how they just kind of revert back to the world before? Um, you know, our conversation reminds me. You know, again, World War II era. There was this huge shift with women going into the workforce, um, and while that ended up having some uh, permanent um, uh, implications on social history and, and women's rights women largely did not stay in the factories after the men came back from war, right? Uh, and it, it, it didn't necessarily have that, that permanent change in, in workforce culture. Um, but have there, I, but I, presumably there's been other examples where there's been companies that have permanently ended up either with new processes or new products because of how they've had to adapt. Absolutely. And, 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 and to your point, sometimes it, it, it goes back into remission uh, as part of the portfolio to come back at a later time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, you know, you talked about Brooks Brothers. Uh, you know, Brooks Brothers themselves, you know, were always a maker and a merchant, and then they outsourced, and then they brought it back in again so that when this crisis uh, arose, they, they had kind of almost kind of re, reappropriated a uh, skill set. I think of something though, like uh, 100 octane fuel, uh, which Shell Oil uh, innovated during the Second World War for for planes. Well, what did they do with it after the war? <laughs> they put it back. They, they number one, they they helped fuel commercial aviation, but they also then start upping the octane in in automobiles. So a lot of those innovations that you see, either. I I I I I'd be hard pressed to think. You know, it's interesting. I. I I mentioned to you earlier that there was a the uh, the uh, handgun, you know, Colt, and a number of those companies uh, many years ago got into the early tabulating adding machines, uh, and they they use it to diversify. But to be totally honest, you know, war comes along, they're they're not they're not sending tabulating machines to the front lines; they're sending guns. And so, you know, typically, anyone that would have pivoted. Uh, permanently to to a different line of business, uh, they had a line of business that was already, you know, not doing that well. So it was very, you know, was was already on the downside. But having said that, you do see situations with companies that keep those things in their portfolio and they come back time and time again 
when when the when the conditions are such or right uh, that, that 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 there's a need for it. Yeah, yeah. I read interestingly enough. I read a piece recently, and the comparison was made that uh, COVID nineteen does to businesses what it does to people, which is that it really feeds on organizations with pre existing conditions. Um, so the organizations that are not coming out on the stronger side of this are the ones, you know, namely retail that already had, you know, huge deficiencies in their business model. And, you know, just like, uh, just like many people that, that ultimately, um, ultimately uh, suffer more greatly, a lot of them obviously had those pre-existing conditions. So kind of an interesting comparison. Yeah, well, you see, we used to have built into our economies you know, these uh, eight to 10 year cycles and, 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 and huge, huge shifts that used to do that for us. You know, I mean, if you go back into the 19th century, my goodness, just take a look at the number of major uh, depressions and recessions that are just constantly one after the other. So companies had the ability, you know, it really was the, it really was the strongest survived having been Mm. through that. Relatedly, though, you know, if you look at the kind of innovations, if you go back, you, you know, you mentioned the Second World War. If you go back to the Civil War, there wasn't large-scale business yet. So basically, what were the, how did people respond? Ladies took their petticoats and made bandages, right? That's what they did. By the time you get to the First World War, yeah, you've got some large organizations, but you still don't have the regulatory environment. It's still a lot of the Wild West, right? And so that's why you get all these privateers and these guys make a lot of money during this First World War. Second World War, by that point, we've got the regulatory regime that much of it had come in place during the Great Depression. You got a series of laws. Now you can't do what you did. Well, it's interesting to see now, uh, given the global nature, the information technology, and I would argue, watch how quickly a vaccine is developed. It, it It's... Let's go back to petticoats as bandages, and let's go to global vaccine business in what, 100 and some years? It's truly remarkable. It's the technology, the regulatory regime, it's the science that is all advanced that is going to make this one very different than the ones before. Look, this ain't beer cans and and uh, and uh, hand grenades. This is something much bigger. And so, yeah, I, I agree. Having said that, the, the 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 survival of the fittest is always going to be there yeah well and as always as we always say uh with you know crises they create they create challenges and they create opportunities um so yeah cool well, here, here we are well this is fun i'm you know it's fun to look at some of these things i you know they're, they're cumulative for me and that you know a lot of these organizations i'm talking about one time or the other i touched those documents i saw those things and they're and they're really really they're, they're fun to look back at and put in perspective to where we are today. Cool. Well, thank you as always, Bruce. And uh, we'll pick it up and uh, talk again soon. Big Chief, over and out. Talk to you later. That's our show this week. Thanks for listening as always. We'll be back after July 4th with more stories from the history of business and brands. Until then, stay safe and be well.